Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Steve Dennis to the program today, who is out with a new book, Remarkable Retail. Steve is a fortune contributor, all-around retail guru, has some great insights for us. And probably the timing couldn't be better. Depending on which country you're listening in from, you're anywhere from six weeks to four months into this worldwide pandemic that is a rippling through all parts of every country's economy. So let's take a quick look at where we are from a consumer point of view. What are they spending their money on and what are they spending their time on is an important question. We've got a couple graphics to look at. So the first one tells us how consumers say they're actually spending their time and their money. Surprisingly, things like eating, reading, and watching movies is reportedly down. Again, this is a self-selected survey, but a very large survey. While they also say sleeping and online shopping and sexual intimacy is on the rise. So that's good news in some households, I I suppose, but uh, we'll see. Second graphic reveals more interesting data. It's early data about what happened with Amazon shopping mid-March of 2020. So this data basically says what you could almost guess, that major things like apparel, footwear, accessories are way down and off the numbers. People are just not focusing on that right now. At the same time, health and beauty and self-care is on the rise, and maybe with the exception of certain cosmetics. You know, the lipstick effect always does kind of kick in in these markets, but there's a little less focus on that right now and more on skincare and quality of products where consumers are shifting just to take care of themselves and their families in countries around the world. So what we find out now going into the uh, April and May timeframe is these numbers are way up. Um, the Let's just look at uh, one stat I've got here on my screen, which is the Revive Health and Beauty Index, which shows selfies, skincare analysis, and product recommendations up way over 200%, just to be conservative. So we continue to see this go up as a trend, um, even um, after maybe pandemic starts opening up in certain countries. And we're going to continue to talk about that on the program as well. So shifting to Steve, you know, most retailers thought that the so-called retail apocalypse was their biggest problem a year ago. And then a nationwide or worldwide pandemic actually hit. And it took many of these retailers by surprise. Many of them were forced to close their doors, not knowing when they're going to reopen or even how to forecast revenue right now, where other retailers deemed essential are open and thriving. Quite frankly, business is booming. They're having a hard time keeping up with demand. So it seems like a perfect time to come out with a book called Remarkable Retail, Steve. Can you tell us why you wrote the book and what it's all about and how can it help retailers right now? Sure. Well, um, the book's really a reflection of a lot of the things that I put into practice as a consultant and retail executive and have been working on and speaking and writing about over the last few years. And what I tried to do, the book's got two parts. The first part is called Shift Happens, and it's my take on how we got to where we are, I won't say today, because obviously I didn't anticipate the pandemic when I was writing it. Um, yeah, yeah, give it today's market. You could actually, you could use the real word. You don't have to say shift anymore. You can actually blurt it out. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> exactly, it exactly. 
but yeah, the first part is really kind of where we are, how we got there, what I think is important, and so what. And then the second part is largely this framework that I call the eight essentials of remarkable retail, which is really a way to help uh, retailers dissect where they are and hopefully focus their energies to take action to become more remarkable. Yes, and I took the liberty of putting that graphic on the screen. So those of you that can see it, um, it's uh, the, the eight essentials that are kind of outlined in the book and the way that you've actually mm -hmm. grown companies. Why, why eight essentials? Well, I didn't start necessarily with a firm number in mind. What I found over the years, um, both as a retail executive and then particularly more when I became a consultant and speaker, that I needed some sort of organizing principle to, to help people understand uh, and think through what they needed to do. And really over the last two or three years, I started iterating on a bunch of different ideas to try to be both reasonably comprehensive, I guess, um, right. but distinct enough on what the principles were. And then when I really started to apply them, I mean, I used them with, with clients and um, earlier in my career, but when I also started to look at some of the winners and losers today, it seemed to be validated pretty well. So here we are. Yeah, that, yeah I think it's a fantastic book. I kind of dug into three of the uh, categories on the wheel here, just looking at yeah. off screen here. Uh, uh, I like the radical one, but that's kind of mm -hmm. more of my, my personality probably. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about what are your favorites of the top eight and specifically, you know, why retailers should be, you know, few hundred of them here on, on the, uh, on the WebEx with us. Sure. Why, they sh why should they be focusing on those right now? Well, so one of the challenges, just I guess as a disclaimer, is that when you put together a framework, it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all prescription for every possible right. retailer in different categories, different sizes, et cetera. Um, the, so the, the three that I usually go to if, um, if I'm challenged to do it are um, Harmonized, which is number three, and then Memorable and uh, Radical, the last one. Um, the first six, what I'm finding are increasingly becoming, for lack of a better term, table stakes. In other words, if retailers aren't pretty proficient on all six, they're likely falling behind where seven and eight, uh, which we'll come back to in a second, are really more differentiators. Uh, but the reason why I pick harmonized of the kind of table stakes group is really this recognition of, uh, which we've seen for a while, digital and physical channels blurring um, I really don't like talking about e-commerce and brick and mortar as if they're separate things or separate channels as retailers tend to get yeah, hyper-focused on. Kind of a, I really kind of a think, 90s thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen the blurring of the channels for, for quite some time. And I really think it's more helpful to think about the customer as the channel as opposed to getting hung up on our own particular organization or technology stack or database platform or what have you. Um, so Harmonize is really this idea of customer being the channel, recognizing the blurring of the lines, but the customer experience has to flow beautifully together. So the reason I use the musical um, metaphor, I guess, is this idea of avoiding discordant notes in the experience and then trying to really amplify um, the harmonized beautiful pieces of it that can really be be differentiators. So that's kind of what yeah. Harmonize is about. I noticed some retailers do a great job at harmonizing and mm -hmm. others, there seems to be a disconnect between online and in-store. Um, yeah. For instance, 
you know, so Revive partners with most of the retailers around the globe and the beauty yeah. brands. And I look at someone like an Ulta Beauty, they just have an amazing loyal audience Absolutely. that is yeah. both engaging Absolutely. in the store, but also when they go yeah. home, they're just still using it. Whereas right. other brands have not figured that out. What's the problem there? Well, I think a big part of it is um, organizationally, the historical function, or if you just think about the progression, you had retailers that were very brick and mortar oriented and the initial wave of e-commerce, some of them tended to develop e-commerce. Like when I was at Sears a bazillion years ago, yeah. we set our Sears.com business off in a different building and you know, let, leave them alone because we'll probably screw it up. And I think there was some merit to that to get speed early on. But I think right. what became pretty clear, like when I joined Neiman Marcus in 2004, so you know, pretty long ago, uh, to work on multi-channel integration, it was pretty obvious that even in a retailer like Neiman Marcus, which you think of, you know, personal shopping in store, beautiful brick and mortar, we were seeing a lot of customer journeys at that time starting online. And we were seeing a lot of customers that would go back and forth between channels. And so I think the retailers that were really paying attention to customer behavior and how customer journeys were changing were early in on uh, breaking down the silos and really thinking about as one customer experience and others just basically watch the last, you know, 10, 15 years happen to them. Um, but it's really, I mean, Ulta is a, one of the um, companies I talk about in the, in the book and in my keynotes often, they really got ahead of it and it's, it's, you know, a huge advantage. And now in the crisis, right. it's, it's paying off because stores are closed and people are already used to, I think, going to Ulta.com to get information and buy. Yeah, and demand has been, uh, I don't know about through the roof, but uh, very strong. The, yeah. Another thing about them, um, maybe compared to someone else, is like an Neiman Marcus maybe, um, is the amount of investment they put into technology and partnering with companies like Revive and other, other yeah. I mean, they, they, they have taken ownership of that in a way that I don't see systemically across retail. Uh, I, I agree. I think one of the things that was a real mistake and continues to be a real mistake in some cases um, is when, when people were bringing forth technology investments, particularly to enable digital, um, the ROI calculation tended to be, okay, we're going to spend this money. How much online business are we going to drive to get that ROI? And I think that's a fundamentally stupid way of looking, of looking at it because we know that digital drives actually in most for most retailers digitally actually drives more brick and mortar sales than e-commerce sales and so this channel centric P&L ROI capital justification will cause would cause you if you approached it that way to systematically underinvest in digital technology and i think there are a number of companies uh, Nordstrom Starbucks Ulta Sephora you know just to pick another beauty category that didn't really think about it that way they thought about it as both a smart long-term strategy as well as we don't really care where the customer transacts um, we just want to take care of them so say there's really kind of a tale of two cities in terms of how many retailers approached it over the last five ten years and now you have a lot that are just scrambling to catch up and then others that like Ulta that are benefiting. Some of the interesting stats that we're seeing and trying to project out for our partners is what's going to happen with the old term omni-channel and what percentage of consumers that were maybe not as comfortable using online that are going to 
to use it more and more. For instance, the laggard sector of the baby boomer population, um, no. n- not us, you know, but people that just, they were, they just, why would I go shopping? I can go down the street, um, right. are going to think twice about that. Is there an opportunity there for, uh, especially the, you know, that kind of that mediocre middle you talk about, the, the retailers yeah. in the middle that need to differentiate and do something different. Is this given an opportunity? You know, I, I have to say, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I think on the one hand, anybody who thinks they can really predict what, how the pandemic <laughs> is going to affect future customer behavior, I, I, I just think it's, yeah. it's really hard to predict. And by the way, I don't, and this is not the most apt comparison, but I remember after the financial crisis, there were all these surveys about how consumer behavior was going to change forever. And, you know, that's what people were saying they were going to do. And, you know, for the most part, that didn't happen. So I just don't think, Consumers are very good at predicting future it's behavior, and like, and we don't know like, what, right? Yeah, we we don't know what the world's going to look like. Um, I, I generally think that most of the trends that were already occurring um, are, are just about any I can think of the major ones. They're only going to be accelerated by the pandemic. So certainly, use of e-commerce. Um, online pickup in store, those sort of things once stores are back open. Um, what I'm not so sure of is if you think about the major e-commerce sort of behaviors, um, you know, most people have had a lot of experience with e-commerce. When you look at the number of people that are households that are prime members, it's not like people don't know what prime is. Uh, and you have apparel categories, which are already like 25% online shopping. So the categories that are pretty well developed that people have already tried, I'm not sure there's going to be that big a change once we get back to some semblance of you know, normalcy in terms of stores being open. What I think will be most interesting will be some of these really underpenetrated categories where people are basically being forced to check them out. So you know, curbside pickup of groceries, touchless payment. I mean, I think there'll be some of those that the leading edge or bleeding edge people are already onto, but the rest of the people are laggards. They'll get exposed to it and many of them will go, oh, you know, actually this is pretty cool and it's a lot easier to use than I thought. And to the extent I am worried about going to a store when I don't really have to, I mean, I think that that behavior will be probably more persistent. Yeah, we're seeing a couple of trends just with our partners trying to queue up what is the next technology they need to have in stores. And some mm-hmm. of the buzzwords for them are, you know, higher levels of security, like cyber security, um, mm-hmm. um, sanitary conditions, things like that. Even sure. things like even things like bring your own device. It's like, I don't mm-hmm. want to use the store device. I want to use this right. little thing to yep. do my uh, whatever it is, do my transaction, my analytics, my face scans, whatever, whatever it is. T- tons of things can be used yeah. for that. Um, yeah. Any opportunities there for the kind of uh, the retailers that maybe are a little bit further behind that could catch up? Well, I think I think the more, I mean, this is maybe sort of a generic com- comment, but I think this is a great opportunity to really not get necessarily so caught up in what might be a short-term behavior, but try to see what the crisis is telling you about maybe some latent demand, or maybe, like I've seen a bunch of folks that um, were already planning to do some testing Right. Of some technology, push that ahead, mm-hmm. uh, maybe more out of desperation <laughs> than strategy. Um, but I think this is a great time to go deeper on customer behavior, try to glean those insights. I, I think regardless of the pandemic, retailers aren't doing enough testing, which is really kind of the essence of number eight radical. Um, so I think just keep pushing the envelope 
on these things. But, you know, it's a little hard to give kind of a one-size-fits-all prescription on that. Let's touch on that, though, the um, memorable and radical. So yeah. one of the, I mean, the book is 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 uplifting. It's not like doomsday. Um, but one of the, um, one of your uh, taglines is retail's not dead, just boring-ass retail is dead. So yeah. Yeah. tell us about, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, one thing that, that I started noticing probably close to 10 years ago uh, was what Deloitte later talked about in a study is the bifurcation of retail. And, mm-hmm. and if you think about putting retailers on kind of a continuum, at one end of the continuum are those retailers that are mostly about price, convenience, assortment. Uh, so Amazon, Walmart, et cetera. Other end of the spectrum, I guess you could call more experiential or premium retailers, Neiman Marcus, Lululemon, Apple. Um, and then you have a lot of retailers in this, what I have ended up calling the boring or mediocre middle, which aren't the best on price. They're not super easy to shop. You know, on the other hand, they don't have particularly unique product. There's nothing special about their service. And if you look at, you know, the so-called retail apocalypse, the vast majority of store closings and bankruptcies are concentrated in that mediocre middle. So we've seen this trend over time of poorly differentiate, you know, it's always been good to have a unique selling proposition. Like that's not a new idea, but I think what's really happened in this era of disruption is consumers obviously are more in charge. There is an abundance of product selection, information, et cetera. So, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, to be that signal amid all this noise, how do you stand out? Um, and if you aren't not just very good, but remarkable in the way Seth Godin first, I think, started to talk about it, and I borrow heavily from in the book, if you aren't remarkable, you're not even getting the customer's attention, much less the sale. So I think as uh, time and trust become precious assets, but choice is just overwhelming, um, anybody who's stuck in this boring middle is likely to be in trouble. So you got to pick a lane. You've got to either go strongly to that price value convenience um, end, in which case you're going to try to have to out Amazon, Amazon, or out Walmart, Walmart, and good luck and Godspeed for that strategy for, for most of us. You know, the yes. other end is to try to get much more clarity on who the customer is, what you're doing that's really meeting their desires and needs in a memorable, unique way and then hopefully creating that story that really deeply resonates with them but also you know in the literal part of the remarkable coining of the phrase that they're willing to talk about because that's the thing that really i think amplifies your brand over the long term yeah and they've got to make some big bold moves so mm-hmm. you know, without a without a pandemic things are bad so bankruptcies i mean they, some of them you know if you're a jc penny what do you do do you see some of these big brands that are um you know, kind of in the middle there, uh, maybe just pulling up stakes and going online, still being a, a formidable force out there. Uh, but do you see some shifts in the whole mall behavior and, you know, rent and store traffic? I, I know we're social creatures. We're going to yeah. continue to shop. I'm not panicking, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of square footage out there. Sure. Well, so a few things are going on there. You probably know about I me. Mean, one is the U.S., was very overstored going into this pandemic. Um, yeah, I mean, 2019 I, alone, they opened uh, 4,000 stores. I think 9,300 closed. But yeah, well, know, it's really. I mean, there is one of the reasons why I don't like the retail apocalypse narrative so much is you know you still see lots of stores opening and lots of mostly brick and mortar based retailers, Ulta being an example, but plenty mm-hmm. of others doing really well. It's not. It's not inherently that. 
I mean, physical retail is still close to 90% of all retail sales. Physical retail sales have grown year over year for a decade straight. Now that'll probably stop this year, but may very well pick up. So physical retail is hardly dead. It's just the segments are shifting so so dramatically. So I don't think an online only business for the most part is, is viable. Uh, most of e-commerce is pretty unprofitable. Um, and some of the things that consumers really like are, are almost profit proof for a lot of retailers. But I think, you know, consumer behavior yeah. is obviously shifting that way. And we still need, even before the pandemic, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is that retail is under demolished. I mean, there's just a lot of retail that still needs to be bulldozed and turned into apartments or, or whatever. So that was true going into the pandemic. Um, and the trends now, I think, are just mostly going to be accelerated. So I think we absolutely will see, you know, it's like the limping gazelle, right? It's like, you know, the the folks that were weak going into this, um, yep. they're going to get picked off, unfortunately. I mean, that's not, some of it's inevitable and it's just being accelerated. Um, some are just, I think, going to get caught up in not having the time um, yes. or the ability to raise capital to mount a transformation. And, you know, unfortunately, I think Penny's is probably the kind of the poster child for that right now among the kind of legacy iconic brands. And they, and, and they've tried a lot of things in the interiors to make it more remarkable. Um, I'm just right. looking at the chat. I'm just looking at the chat window. So one um, person who identifies themselves as a, a retailer seems like specialty shops. How do you create that in-store magic? You seem to have a knack for that. But what are well, things that people should do for specialty brands, let's say? Or... Well, you know, frankly, it's a lot easier in a specialty brand than it is in these little bit of everything to everybody retailers, right? Because you're trying exactly. to you're trying to change a bit, a huge box. You know, a million years ago, when I was at Sears and we were trying to fix things, I mean, there's lots of issues there. That's a whole different podcast. But you know, just the sheer size of the footprint and all the domino effects of trying to reconfigure your stores when you're so mall based and all the trends report for that. So I think for right. specialty stores, it's a lot easier because you have a lot more clarity of who your customer is and the purchase occasions you're, you're trying to serve. Um, and then you can dissect those things that, uh, you know, as I talk about in, in memorable, like what are those things you can do experientially or product wise to really amplify the wow for other retailers. I think part of the challenge has been what they count on is, innovation is what I call a slightly better version of mediocre. You know, it's, they're just, they're just, <laughs> you know, just well, in some cases, the other guys, yeah. Well, in some cases they're innovating to parity, right? Which is not, right. you know, they're, they're so far behind that by the time they fix the problem, everybody's moved on. Um, but, you know, putting a coffee shop in or some cool visual or whatever, when you're not meeting, when you're not clear who your customer is, you're not meeting them their needs in a really compelling way is better, but it's not, you know, even good, much less remarkable. So I think it's, I think what's part of the reason why we're going to see a lot of these um, boring middle retailers, particularly the ones that are uh, a little bit of everything for everybody continue to close is that a lot of the stuff they're doing just doesn't move the dial very much when you've got Amazon and others that are just killing it on convenience and price. And then a lot of the specialty retailers that can just be much more honed in on. So I wish I had the silver bullet strategy for the the Macy's and the and the uh, and the pennies of the world. But you know the the problems that that or the reckoning they're going to have is a function of watching the last twenty years happen to them. It's not just 
the pandemic or you know the last few quarters. Um, so it's it's really tough. I mean, the advice used to be for small shops, um, whether it's in the UK or the US or somewhere else, was to you know make sure you are part of the community, you have a sense of community, mm, and sure. you know, we uh, consultants beat them over the head with community. But Walmart has kind of captured the community name, and through this time of of trouble, um, has actually lived up to it. They've actually yeah. just kind of shown up and and they employ people locally. There's it's a totally different company and culture. So I'm seeing large corporations do that. But then Amazon, a little bit harder to do that. It's like there's a fleet driving around. That's the community. I mean they're they're they yeah. seem like they're bigger than the post office in this country, not every country right. that's listening sure. in. Sure. So what other things besides, hey, you know, the the small, smaller shops are just struggling with, how do they stay ahead of this? Well, I think what the smaller shops can do, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you about Walmart, but still a lot of what Walmart does is fairly generic. You know, it's done at oh, a yeah. large scale. So I think what smaller shops can do, first of all, and off, you know, often cases you've got the owner or family or what have you involved in the business. So they can actually do what the great shopkeepers of a century ago, you know, so everybody knows your name, right? You want to go to a place that everybody knows your name. You know, you can know that customer. Some, uh, sometimes, can, sometimes I don't actually. <laughs> not, not always. Anonymity but but I do sometimes. think, but I think that's the challenge. I mean, one of the things I hope, which is a little bit off your question, but I think smaller retailers are best positioned to do that. I hope that we'll have a bit of a return to empathy. Um, number two, which we didn't talk about is what I call human centered retail. And I yeah. think absolutely technology, AI, you name it, can be incredibly good for efficiency and in some cases enabling more personalization, but kind of fake personalization. Right. But I think the advantage you have as a smaller retail is you're probably seeing more of your customers face to face, whether it's you as the owner or sales associates, they can really uh, deal with the customer on a more empathetic level. They can have more of a one-to-one -one dialogue which, you know, again, you can mimic some of that with technology, certainly, and use fancy modeling to create the illusion of that. But I, but I think we're going to crave, um, as I think some of us are, are um, dealing with right now, we're gonna craving that human interaction. We're craving being seen. We're craving that sense of belonging. And so I think small shops can do that in the one-to-one -one interactions, but, you know, they can create whether it's a big sale or events or or other kinds of things once they can open their physical stores again to make that trip to the store worthwhile and and use digital to enable that and to keep those relationships going and maybe to fulfill orders online but you know i think a lot sure. of times stores um particularly small stores are great for acquiring customers um, yeah, we're and seeing, then, we're, seeing uh, we're seeing many of them jump on the kind of platform bandwagon. So, for instance, they're embedding themselves in Amazon and in Walmart, and they're sure. just a beauty. They're an indie beauty brand or a local shop, yeah. and yeah. it's it's paying off. I mean, they're, they're, they sure. tend to get higher higher ratings than some of the uh, generic mm -hmm. uh, products you can buy. Um, so, it seems like there's lots of tools available. What, what we've been seeing at, at Revive is like you just said something really important. It's like Technology for technology's sake is the wrong thing for retailers right. to bring into stores. It needs to be invisible. It needs to help. And in some cases, right. it doesn't, and in a fake way, sort of need to look real and engaging. And that's where the world is right now in technology. It's becoming more invisible, which is good. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I say in the book is no consumer buys technology. I mean, you're not, you know, you're, you're not interested in technology. You're interested in how that brand experience makes you feel. Uh, you know, particular beauty brands, obviously, you know, it's 
hope in a, in a bottle or hope in a jar or whatever that expression is, right? I mean, right. Uh, people pay a premium for certain products, not because it demonstrably improves, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work functionally. Not, you know, you're not sure it works functionally the best, uh, but it makes you feel better in it. And it presents you in a certain light to how you want to be seen in the world. That's a very human sort of thing that technology can enable. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not anti-technology. But I think, um, you know, simplistically, you can think about technology is probably more about efficiency and mm -hmm. maybe the human part is more about effectiveness. Um, not, you know, not that black and white necessarily. But yeah, consumers, consumers want, you know, the Ted Lovett said, you know, people don't buy, buy a drill because they want a hole <laughs> or because they want a drill. They buy the drill because they want a hole. And I think the more we're focused on the customer outcomes or I think it was Clayton Christensen that talked about job customer jobs to be done. You know, think jobs about done, of course. the ultimate outcome, and then um, the technology may very well help you get there faster, cheaper, better. Um, but leading with technology, I, don't, I think, just is is really a mistake. It's got to lead to something, and it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's for some retailers, uh, even e-commerce providers, they find it counterintuitive to actually engage with consumers and give them content and educate them. But now they've learned years later that that's all part of the funnel, and the funnel mm -hmm. doesn't always have to lead doesn't always have to lead to them buying something. That's what local shops, I think, are good at. It's right. Like, yeah. Come back tomorrow. It's fine. So a yeah. um, couple, couple more questions here. Uh, well, one's very practical. Where, where's the best place to buy the book? I probably could answer that, but I'll let you do it. <laughs> so I'm going to say, I'm going to give you, there's, fortunately, it's available just about everywhere. Um, I'm going to suggest two places. Uh, the, the most selfish one is to buy it at Amazon because they have the biggest footprint and people pay attention to ratings and algorithms and all that kind of stuff that helps. Um, but I'm going to suggest you also take a look at bookshop.org which is a new org. platform that yep. is supporting independent uh, bookstores. And as you might imagine, a lot of the independent bookstores are really, really hurting right now. And bookshop.org, um, I forget the exact percentage off the top of my head, but they um, have a very lucrative, in the scheme of things, payout to the independent bookstores that, that they support. So if you want to support independent bookstores, bookshop.org. If you want to uh, support the man, <laughs> go to amazon.com yeah we should do a poll question on that on the next call i think they were <laughs> reacting they were reacting to the local shop uh, dialogue and um, yeah any uh, parting words that um a lot of different companies online that i've been looking at here both large retailers small retailers indie brands any uh i know one of the chapters is available online you can actually view it probably on amazon so yeah the first, the first um yeah if you actually if you go to my website um which is stephenpdennis.com and click on books um, you can download the first chapter and see good. the index and all that kind of good stuff. Um, I think I, I think you know right now it's it's um, you know my book's a strategy book. It's not a crisis management book. And as the great uh, business strategist Mike Tyson said, everybody has a strategy until you get punched in the face. And right now everybody's got a punch in the face. And so I appreciate that um, people just got to manage for cash in a lot of cases and just. Uh, muscle our way through this. My hope would be if you can do it, that you use this time to really think about how to build um, the trusted asset of your brand better or focus on relationships, not transactions. And so that may mean you know, really being empathetic towards your associates. It may mean not charging for stuff that you'd like to charge 
for, um, you know, there could play out a lot of different ways, but I think try to play the long game as best you can. I think that the people you work with and your partners and, um, and customers will, will hopefully reward you for that once, once we start to get back, back on some semblance of normalcy, whatever the hell normalcy is. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> Nothing's normal. Great advice. Um, yeah, I'm a sign of a good leader is you're managing through a crisis, but you're also not taking your eye off the long-term strategy of the company. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not a leader, and you've got to stay focused on that. And yes, you're starting to see that now. I think a lot of people have gotten through the reaction, and they're trying to think about how to, how do we relaunch and regain. So a lot of great insights in the book. Um, hope all of you, uh, you. go and uh, pick it up. And uh, I want to thank you, Steve, for joining us today on the Reboot Chronicles. And um, we'll see you all soon. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me.